I'm not going to go back over it and read it again. I just want to <clears throat> I just want to take a look at it and and have a conversation about this because I think it's so easy for us when we read this to not think about the the practical sides of things. Here's the first thing I want I want you to think about. Okay? Why a wedding? We know that this passage talks about the first sign that Jesus did. We have to be very careful about confusing sign with miracles. Most people see sign, they read miracle. That's not what is being pointed here. John actually several times very specifically uses the word sign. He indicates something that indicates uh, an aspect of Jesus' ministry. That's what a sign is. But why a wedding? Um, What do we know about weddings? What do we know about weddings? They're happy occasions. Okay. What else? All right. Union between man and wife. Okay. Rob? All right. Loving forever. Absolutely. Other things? Start of a new journey. Bring two different families together. Okay. Um. Is there one way to do a wedding? Lots of different weddings. I've done way more weddings than um, than uh, than I can keep track of, and I have seen some of the strangest things. People tying their hands together, people jumping over cleaning instruments. Um, somebody brought a sword one time, uh, and you know I always have my standard jokes about our modern weddings because the way that our modern weddings work uh, came out of uh, medieval feudalism, um, and uh, and it, people always talk about you know when you think about all the expense that goes into a wedding and everybody's like why are weddings so expensive, and this is all right so I'm just going to go ahead I'm going to brace myself I'm going to there there're going to be people mad at me about this so I'm just going to go ahead but this is historical this is how it is royal weddings were expensive big hoopla things with a woman with careful chiffon and dresses and all that. peasants got married in whatever they were wearing whatever day it was and what happened is as the renaissance kind of moved in and people we had a middle class People wanted to present themselves as aristocracy, equal to aristocracy. And so they started to do weddings that looked like noble weddings. And that's really where a lot of our wedding traditions work. Uh, For example, how many of you have been a groomsman in a wedding? Okay. What is your job? To stand there. I mean, at least the maids, at least the, you know, the, the bridesmaids, they get to walk down the aisle. Most of the time, the groomsmen don't even get to do that. They just, the groom says, oh, the bride's here, okay, everybody just lines up, and then you stand there for 20 minutes. You know that their original job, do you know what their original job was? Uh, no, it was not just to act as witness. It was to kill anybody else who tried to steal the bride. They they were they were the guardsmen. That was their job. They were the guards of the ceremony. They were called the groomsmen because they were all equestrian. They could all ride horses in the, in nobility. That was the kind of the thing. And so they were all groomsmen. It didn't mean that they were groomed, right? Groom in the ancient world, groom or the medieval world, grooming was something you did to horses. And it was like, oh, he's well groomed. <laughs> all right. They, um, but they 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 that was the groomsmen's job. Do you know what the bridesmaid's job was? 
to make sure she got there. All right, they were they were you know kind of making sure that she would. They were generally the bridesmaids' family was generally uh, the the bridesmaids generally were drawn from the groom's family, and the idea was they were an escort. They made sure she didn't run off and marry some other guy, um, and run off into the woods and marry some other guy and get away from the the legal contract, which is really what the ceremony was about. So our our medieval uh, our, well our medieval marriages they are they are still very much. I mean the whole veil thing. I, I just. I, my my wife had a veil I could see through. I wasn't gonna trust them. <laughs> I I read the Bible. There there were stunts people pulled where they stuck another girl in there. I'm making sure I marry the one I want to marry. Um, but uh, you know the veil that was you know protection and innocent white means innocence and all these things. It, our our way of marriage is a little bit different, but there is still primarily the same thing. Now it might fascinate you to know that the Bible contains no wedding ceremony plan. There is nothing in the Bible that says this is how a wedding works. In the ancient world, going way back, way, way, way back, all right, um, Bronze Age kind of thing, uh, what happened with weddings normally was that there was a, a contract, a plan for the wedding, and a groom, usually the groom's family and the and the bride's family would negotiate a contract. She, the bride, usually didn't have any say in it. Um, and uh, they would negotiate, a, I mean, she had some say in it because she obviously had access to bladed weapons. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but um, but she, she uh, they negotiated the contract and then she would stay at her, her father's home. And when the groom was ready, he would come and they would throw a party. And that was their wedding, right? That was pretty much what happened. By the time we get to the time of, uh, the time of Christ, Jewish weddings have become a big thing. How many have ever heard a Jewish wedding, they go, oopa, right? The hoopa, right? They, you know, there's all this stuff and Greek weddings do the same thing. Oopa, right? This whole, this is the idea of the, the, the union of the two people. This is really what it is. It kind of, there's different things. Jewish weddings, you go to Jewish wedding, a lot of time there'll be like a, like a pavilion over them and, and stuff like that. Um, the, the idea what had become a big deal was that these weddings were these feasts. Now, a wedding usually lasted a week. Um, now, that didn't mean that everybody was there the whole week. Um, but you had basically a week where everybody who knew you could come through and congratulate the married couple and all that stuff and make, make sure everything was good and drop off gifts and, and those kind of things. And it was the job of the... It was the job of the groom's family to provide everything for that wedding. Um, and so when you hear Jesus, when Jesus tells parables about weddings, Jesus seemed to know weddings pretty well. Now, given the number of siblings that he has, um, that's probably why. Um, he has several brothers, at least two sisters, uh, half-brothers, half-sisters, uh, the, the natural children of Joseph and, and Mary, um, and, uh, and he seems to have participated in these weddings. He also seems to have had a pretty extensive family, um, and so uh, this is one of those weddings, and so a wedding would go on for a week, and you'd be invited to go to the wedding, and the idea was that the groom would provide everything for the wedding. Now, what's interesting about the wedding here. Um, which I find uh, very interesting about this wedding, and I wouldn't take a bullet for this, um, but there are two things that happen in this wedding. First, um, in Greek, the wedding is referred to as a chamos. All right? Now, chamos is a singular word. Um, normally, when you speak of a wedding in, in Greek in the first century, you, you talk of a chamoi, um, a plural 
the joining of two. All right, not a single joining, but the joining of two. That's an interesting, it's an interesting little grammatical thing. Um, coupled with the fact that um, there's no father of the bride or groom in this situation. Normally, there would be parents at this wedding. There would be a father at the wedding. So, although I would not take a bullet for this, I suspect that this is one of Jesus' sister's or cousin's weddings. And that Mary is there as the head of the household. That's why she's constantly being called Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, now I can't, I can't, obviously can't prove that. But it's very odd that the person, the people that are mentioned in this narrative are not the, the father of the groom or the father of the bride. Not mentioned anywhere. Instead, we get Mary, the mother of Jesus. We get some servants. We get a head butler. All right, and then we get the groomsman, the groom, right? So you, you get the um, you get the the master of the feast. That's the head butler. He's in verse eight and verse verse nine, and you get the bridegroom. Um, but you don't get you don't get the father of the bride. So um, possible that this is one of Jesus's family members, and Mary is the matriarch of the family. And if you want to catch up on Mary, you can. Well, I did a whole series on her um, back uh, around Advent and Christmas season um, about this kind of extraordinary woman. Um, but they, so they're at this wedding, um, and now, contra my position, here, here's one issue I have that maybe Mary is not in charge of this wedding. Can anyone guess the reason I might say Mary is not in charge of the wedding? They ran out. out. That's exactly right. No mom is ever going to have a party that runs out of things. All right. And no Mediterranean mom is ever going to run out of anything. There's always more left over. In fact, if you're part of an Italian family like I am, at the end of the party, what's happening? You take some home. Take some home. You take some home. No, 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 I can't take it. You take it home. You take some home. You know, and they're smuggling lasagna in your bag and stuff. I mean, they, they want to, so, so there's that, there's that situation, but they run out of wine. Now, there's a lot of reasons they might run out of wine. One reason that they might run out of wine, and this is an interesting speculation, one reason they might have run out of wine is that Jesus showed up with more disciples than they planned for and he stayed longer than he intended to. Um, and so that's possible. I mean, Jesus, because Jesus and his disciples are invited, but everybody's like, ah, you know, Jesus, one or two people, and he shows up with a bunch of very hungry fishermen. Um, and, uh, and who, by the way, have just walked from Jerusalem. So they're, um, so they're kind of interested. Anyway, they say they have, she says to them in verse, in verse three, Mary, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And, and we've talked about this before when Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, and, and it's interesting. There's, uh, there's, um, uh, kind of sociological experiments with this, uh, that have been done in recent years where, uh, they've had uh, people from traditional African cultures and Asian cultures read this passage. And every one of them gets upset with Jesus because they feel that he disrespects uh, Mary. Because if you know anything about traditional Asian or African cultures, you would never in a million years call your mother woman. All right. Now that's an interesting cultural touch point. Um, in Jesus' day, he's actually honoring her. He's, he's elevating her. Um, but in our day, we read it like, woman! All right? That is, that is not how Jesus reads it. All right? Jesus is speaking with great respect to his mother. And he says, uh, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, now, 
And, and Jesus makes that statement. And there's so much conversation about what he set means when he says this. What Jesus means when he says this. What does he mean, my hour has not come? And I encourage you, read the, the book of John and look for the word hour, right? And, and how this is described. Um, but Mary knows that Jesus is going to do something. And he t- she tells the servants to do whatever he tells you. Well, then Jesus, and I mentioned this last week, then Jesus looks over and he sees these six stone jars in verse 6. Um, and they are there for the Jewish rites of purification. Literally, they're there for washing. That's what these jars are for. They're, they're for washing the body. And they have some water in them, apparently, but not a lot of water in them. And Jesus tells them to fill them to the brim. All right? So there's a couple of things you would never do this. Because these are, these are you know, they're, they're basins, basically. They're, they're, they're big. Um, they're about 20, 30 gallons each. So they're not as big as a 50-gallon drum, but they're a fairly substantial um, stone jar. And they use stone because stone was pure, could be purified. Um, and what you would do is you would, you'd have these, these jars, basically big bowls. So not like, not like we think of a jar, like a giant mason jar or, or a drum, more of, like a, it, more of like a crater, more of like a big open um, tub but 20, 30 gallons, and what you would do is you would fill it, but you didn't fill it all the way top because everybody would come in and they, they're going to do this, right? They're going to wash their hands and, and wash their faces and be clean and go into the feast, right? And, and there's a whole process. There's new robes. Um, there's, Jesus tells a parable about um, the, the marriage supper and people, being, uh, people not showing up with their robes. And, and there's a, the, the tradition was that the, the, the head of the household would prepare robes. So you'd wash yourself, put on a new robe, go into uh, the wedding feast. And Jesus says, all right, so take these, um, take these wash basins, basically. And I want you to fill them to the brim. Well, you don't fill them to brim because then people are going to splash water all over the place, right? So you, you don't fill these to the brim. He says, fill them to the brim, right? And then I want you to take some over to the, the head butler. And notice that at no point here does Jesus do anything. You see that? We tell this parable, we, we're like, oh, and then Jesus turned the water into wine. And we kind of have this idea of like Jesus, I don't know, waves his hand or, or you know, his wand and says, you know, inspectro or something. I don't know what he does. I, I, I don't know the Harry Potter book, so I got the spells wrong. I don't care. Um, but, you know, he, he, but we have nothing like that. All he does is tell the servants to fill these stone things. And he says, and then take some out and take it to the butler. He takes it to the butler. And the butler's like, hey, where'd this wine come from? Jesus takes no credit. There's nothing about what Jesus is doing that indicates that Jesus has done anything. Right? Nothing. Except that the party is getting started. And then then the master of the feast, he has this line, uh, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Um, what does he mean? Uh, he, he actually means you, 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 uh, you basically, you start with the best stuff, and then once everybody's inebriated, then you give them the, the garbage, because nobody notices, right? Um, and I find that that is a fairly good uh, argument about alcohol. I, I'm not a alcohol drinker i'm just not a big fan of it um but i have smelled some of the things that people drink when they're partying what on earth is jägermeister 
Why does that substance even exist? It smells to me like somebody ate and then threw up a bunch of uh, like tree car fresheners. It's disgust. I'm like, I just walked by it one time in a restaurant. Somebody had some. I'm like, oh, oh, I like threw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, so so this idea that you're gonna you're gonna have the good wine, right? You're gonna have the good wine, and then you're gonna have the bad wine afterwards. But here's this good wine. So where did this good wine come from? Now, and then Jesus doesn't say anything. And in fact, the thing that we read is, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan. Now, here's my second question. What is the sign? What is the sign? And I really, I, I had to really think about this. Because we tend to think of the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine as the sign. I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure that it's the miracle that is the sign. Let me talk a little bit about that. Uh, there's a lot going on here. I'm going to give you a few things that are happening. Number one, the first thing that's that's happening, and this, this story, by the way, it works on multiple levels. So I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff. Get ready for the shotgun, the fire hose. It's coming. All right. Uh, number one, uh, one thing that's happening here is that Jesus going to a, a few, uh, going to a wedding and making wine is an argument against the asceticism of many of the early Christian sects, the groups that said we have to deny the flesh, we have to everything is sinful, any pleasures are sinful, so no weddings, no parties, everybody just stand around, stand around with your arms folded reading theology books, um, and uh, oh, that's actually similar to some things today, uh, but but this whole idea that so Jesus actually participating in this festival is a way uh, of communicating that Jesus was not opposed to people enjoying themselves, right? Uh, so often Christians are like, well, Christians, they, Christians do not party, you know, the old line, I don't, uh, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't run with girls that do, um, but but the idea that Christians are not allowed to enjoy themselves, we we only you know only when everything is in ordnung and and done correctly. Um, instead, what we have again, what's happening? We have a resonance of God uh, God's creation. John chapter one, we have a lot about John, Jesus um, Jesus in in as the creation, right? We we have resonance of of Genesis chapter one, God creating the world and the light and and all of those things, and and that that is resonating in in uh, in the first chapter of John. This chapter of John has a kind of curious situation where it seems to resonate very loosely um, with. Uh, with uh, actually with the story of Noah, which is weird. You've got water and you've got wine, and and it not there's no analogy there, but but John seems to kind of loosely structure things according to the biblical narrative, um, and we have this idea of redemption of the idea of wine, and I don't want to I want to talk a little bit about this um, this question because it comes up. You know, um, there was a pastor I followed years ago who used to say, the Bible does not say that drinking beer is a sin. Um, Light beer, however, is questionable. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about this topic of wine because it comes up. Um, There's a whole bunch of people who talk about, you know, this and they go, well, Jesus, what Jesus did was Jesus didn't make wine. He made grape juice. Sorry. No, 
All right, Jesus makes wine. Uh, there is no distinction in the ancient world between... The, I mean, there was no such thing as grape juice until a guy named Welsh's invented a thing called grape juice. I'm not making that up. It was invented so there wouldn't be alcoholic wine in communion. Um, and, and it was the whole idea of pasteurizing it, making sure that it wasn't fermented. Now, wine was wildly uh, uh, diluted in the ancient world. So when you made wine, you didn't drink... What, what gets served at liquor stores and grocery stores today that's like 18, 20% alcohol... You you would not drink that straight in the ancient world. You just wouldn't do it because alcohol dehydrates you and you don't want to be dehydrated. So you, you would mix the alcohol, you would mix that wine with water and what it did was the alcohol in the water, uh, the fermentation process kills bacteria and it becomes very antiseptic. And so you mix that with your water and if you have dysentery or something in your water, it kills the water, okay? So this is, the, this is what you're doing. It's, it's a way of, of drinking things. And also water is boring. Right, so a little bit of flavor is not a bad thing, um, and so uh, I want to I want to sh- share with you just a couple things, uh, and you you can write these verses down. You could take a look at them along the way, um, but when uh, when God describes wine, there's two ways that He describes it. In Psalm chapter four and verse seven, you have put uh, joy in my heart because of wine. You put joy in my heart. Uh, Psalm 104 uh, verses 14 and 15. Um, you have brought forth the grass of the field and wine to gladden, to, to gladden the heart. You brought food to fill the stomach and wine to gladden the heart. Uh, I, I think my, my, my favorite is from Isaiah. I'm actually going to read this one. Isaiah chapter 25. Um, it says, on, the mountain, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So we have this idea of when, when, when Christ redeems and, and sets up a feast, he's going to serve wine. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse 2 is another one. Uh, Go to the house of the Rechabites, and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, and then offer them wine to drink. Um, in other words, he's, he's speaking to them, and he says, he says, come into God's presence and drink wine. However, the other side of this is that wine is not universally celebrated. Um, because wine can also lead to drunkenness. Isaiah chapter 5. And verse 11. My pages are sticking together. I'm going to blame the pollen. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Um, and I could hit a bunch of others, uh, Hosea chapter 7, Joel chapter 1, uh, Proverbs 23, uh, 30 through 31. Um, but I, I want to get again Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 13, Jeremiah thir- 13. You shall speak to them this word. This is a condemnation of the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you will say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land. 
the king who sits on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash one against another, father and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not have pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. I think that uh, Jesus may have actually had this passage in mind. Here. And I'll tell you why. Do you think the response of that butler was a good one? So they need wine because of the celebration. Wine is good. They want to, they're having this wedding. We, wine is good. The butler's reaction is, sweet! Good wine. Let's get everybody kicking. Let's get this party going. And then Jesus leaves. Read Jeremiah 35 again, 13 again. Are the jars full of wine? You know the jars are full of wine. Yeah, because of your drunkenness. You're willing to, you're willing to take... Now, let me, let me get this. Remember earlier in the passage, earlier in the book of John? He came to his own... Actually, verse 9, the true light which gives the light to everyone was coming into this world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So Jesus comes to a wedding. The wedding is suffering of something that would bring joy. He provides the thing that would bring joy and there is no gratitude There is only excess. Sweet, we can start the party all over again. You brought the new wine. We can really get this thing going. What is the sign? The sign is that the people did not see him. The sign is not the miracle. It is that when Jesus did the miracle, all they could think about was themselves. No gratefulness, no thankfulness, no, not even a question of, hey, who brought this wine? It was just assumed this is for us. This is ours. We can use it. We can consume it. And so Jesus just leaves. Jesus, this is the first of signs that Jesus did at at Cana in Galilee, verse 11, and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. But the people at the wedding didn't. It doesn't say many followed him after this. He went in with a group of disciples. He did a miracle. The people reject, didn't even note it, didn't even acknowledge it, and he left with the same set of disciples. The sign was that people were not going to see. The sign was it doesn't matter how miraculous and how beneficial to us it is that Jesus does things, sometimes people just see themselves. Sometimes all they see is that we deserved this wine. So glad Jesus showed up to give us what we deserved. 
And as a result, they don't change. Jesus was in their midst, and they didn't change. Jesus did a miracle in their midst, and they didn't change. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Don't be surprised. When God does extraordinary things, and no one notices. When God provides for you, and you want to shout it from the rooftops, look at this, what God has done, and everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't be surprised that people miss the supernatural. The Bible is full of people missing the supernatural, and I don't know why we miss them so much. Here's a great example. Moses parts the Red Sea. People of Israel cross the Red Sea. And the Egyptians still go after them. Think about that for a second. Wouldn't you think people of Israel crossing the Red Sea, Egyptians riding down with chariots, Pharaoh going, get those Egyptians and Israelites, and somebody would have gone, uh, maybe we shouldn't cross that. Maybe let's not go after them. They seem to have a pretty good God on their side. Don't notice. How about the Israelites, though? We're hungry. Bunch of three-year-olds. We're hungry. All right, I'll send you bread. I'll send you manna every morning. All you got to do is go out and collect it. You don't have to plant it. You don't have to raise it. You don't have to prune it. You don't have to do anything. This is the ultimate product, right? Just shows up every morning. This is boring. Can you give us something else? Okay, I'm going to send quail. Flocks of birds fly through every night, you know. You just grab your birds and roast them. Do you have a salad? (laughs) God does supernatural things. People don't notice. Keep your eyes open for God's water into wine moments in your life. Be prepared to celebrate them. Keep your eyes open for water and wine moments in other people's lives. Signs that God is at work. And be prepared to celebrate them. You know, we as a church, we should celebrate when God does extraordinary things. We should celebrate when God does ordinary things. Because He is our provider. He is our our caretaker. He is our Father. He is our Lord and our Master. But don't be worried if people don't see. How many people, how many people lived through that miracle and hundreds of others that Jesus did and just took them as, this is for me. This is all for me. By the way, the book of John is a case study in people missing the point. Jesus heals a man born blind from 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 birth. I mean, he's been blind from birth. He heals the guy. The guy shows up at the temple. And what do the religious people go? Who did that? Missing the point. Constantly missing the point of Jesus doing extraordinary things. What are the signs that God is doing in your life that you can see and that you can grab and you can hold on to as a disciple of Jesus? 
and just say, this is a water and wine. This is something simple. It's something straightforward. By the way, no challenge for Jesus to turn water into wine. Sometimes we act like it's like, oh, and then he turned water into wine. I'm like, really? I think he can do more than that. I mean, that, that, that's just, what is that? Um, he, he raises people from the dead. He heals people's blindness. He does all kinds of stuff. Be willing to see because if you don't have your eyes open for the times when the water turns into wine, you don't have the eyes open for the signs of Jesus' presence. Before too long, you will take God's blessings and you will use them for your own excess. Just like they did with Jesus' wine. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, help us to be aware of the stone basins you fill with wine in our lives. The provision you make for others through us. The provisions you make to us. May we bring glory and honor to you as you manifest your glory in our midst. And may we celebrate what you are doing. May we be aware of what you're doing in other people's lives. And celebrate it. Exalt your name in the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a bunch of stuff going on. I just want to